Welcome to the weekend edition of the Daily Stoic. Each weekday, we bring you a meditation inspired by the ancient Stoics, something to help you live up to those four Stoic virtues of courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom. And then here on the weekend, we take a deeper dive into those same topics. We interview Stoic philosophers. We explore at length how these Stoic ideas can be applied to our actual lives and the challenging issues of our time. Here on the weekend, when you have a little bit more space, when things have slowed down, be sure to take some time to think, to go for a walk, to sit with your journal, and most importantly, to prepare for what the week ahead may bring. The Daily Stoic is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. One of the cool things about podcasts is that you can multitask while you're listening, but depending on what you're doing right now, like for instance, if you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you could be doing. You could be getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy and you could save money by doing it right from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $700 on average and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts, discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year. So you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join over 29 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $698 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. Hey, it's Ryan. Welcome to another episode of the Daily Stoke Podcast. Anytime Stephen Pressfield or Rich Roll gives me a thumbs up on a person, I'm like, this must be a legit dude or woman or whatever. Anytime they vouch for someone, I take that very seriously because I am a big fan of them. So when both Rich and Stephen recommended Rabbi Mordecai Finley, uh, I was like, I got to check this guy out. I watched his amazing episode on Ritual's podcast, which is worth listening to. And uh, we had an awesome interview. This is a fascinating dude, sort of a warrior monk, if you will. He's uh, a rabbi. He was also a Marine. Uh, he uh, drops in the middle of our interview that he happened to have uh, stopped a mass shooting at LAX many years ago. Um, he is, uh, he received his doctorate in religion and social ethics from the University of California. He also has a small counseling practice where he focuses on wisdom, virtue, and managing consciousness. He specializes in interpersonal relationships, which I think you can tell because I got a little heated in the interview. I was, I've been frustrated, been stressed out, you know, as the Stoics say, uh, People are difficult. People are our proper occupation, Marcus really says, but they are also exhausting and obnoxious and stupid and selfish and mean and cruel. 
And I think the last year has been an exhausting demonstration of that. I don't remember exactly what was going on in my mind when that was leading up to the frustration, but certainly social media never helps. It's never a glimpse into the best of humanity. And uh, it was amazing. I was getting frustrated. I wasn't being particularly stoic. And Rabbi Finley kept bringing me back to a place of empathy and kindness and respect. And I appreciated that so much. You shouldn't always be agreeing with your guests. And I like that we disagreed but I liked how respectful he was. It was definitely a good model for me. He's got a thriving synagogue in Mar Vista. If I lived in California, even though I'm not Jewish, I would see if I could go because uh, wisdom is wisdom, whatever school it's coming from, whatever tradition it hails from. And I think of all the schools, whether we're talking about the Hebrew school or the Stoic school or the Epicurean school uh, or the Buddhist school or the Hindu school, I think at the core of it, all of it is trying to get to truth. I think they all more or less agree on the core virtues of courage, temperance, justice, and wisdom. And I think you're really going to like this interview with the one and only Rabbi Finley. Well, I'm uh, I'm both excited and a little intimidated to chat with you. Anytime Rich Roll tells me I should talk to someone, I take that very seriously. And then for Stephen Pressfield to, to say it, so two people I admire a great deal to sing your praises uh, is uh, means a lot in my book. Well, they're two fabulous people. I've known Stephen a, a long time. He's one of my favorite people. And when I went on Rich Roll's pro- podcast, uh, we had a real connection. He's, he's, a, he's a beautiful man. And I'm very, very uh, honored that you've asked me to be on your podcast as well. Well, I think that's Rich's superpower is that he finds you 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 have almost immediately a very deep connection with him because there's there's something going on there at sort of the soul level that he he manages that he's in touch with and it's sort of i think contagious that's very precise that's exactly right how do you know steven well many years ago i was teaching on a, a jewish concept uh, called the yetzer hara the destructive shape and I think it's the foundation of Jewish spiritual psychology. I've been, in fact, my first published paper uh, back in 1981 was on this topic. And uh, it's not very popular because when many people think about spirituality, they don't think about the inner struggle against uh, forces of opposition and resistance. So uh, it's something I've taught about for years. Somebody who read his book, The War of Art, also attended my synagogue. And he told Stephen about me and Stephen attended a few of my classes, and he says, we have to get together. And it turns out that he landed on this idea of resistance, which reads perfectly onto the biblical, rabbinic, Hasidic idea of the Yetzer Hara, the destructive shape. And we found out we're both former Marines. We had a lot to talk about, and every time we see each other, we dive right in. So um, uh, how can I say, you know, we see each other not that often, but every couple times a year, but it's always very real and very intense. Yeah, the the resistance uh, is obviously something I think anyone in art uh, is intimately familiar with. Like you have what you know you should do, you have what you dream that you want to do, and then you go to do it, or you don't go to do it because, you know, something gets in the way. Right. And <laughs> I, I guess I didn't think about that in a spiritual context, but I, I guess it makes sense. Yes, there's an oppositional force. And therefore, in learning that we have things that we're good at, 
Uh, I mean, you're very good at what you do. I've listened to you and I've uh, read a couple oh, of your you. books. So you're, you're really good. And I know people also really good at what they do, but ne- nearly everybody has something they don't, that doesn't come to them naturally. Uh, so sometimes a very efficient person can be impatient with less efficient people. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're very good at work, are not that great as a spouse or a parent or a child. So when one has a vision for oneself, Typically, for a successful person, there are some things you do well, somewhat by nature, and your habits are good, and other things we don't do well. And we, people ask, why do I get so impatient with my spouse? Why do I get so impatient with my kid? Or why can't I lose weight? Why can't I get in shape? Why can't I get my book done? And the answer is, uh, well, people say, well, I'm lazy or something. And Steve and I agree, that's actually not a good answer. A better answer is there's resistance in me that's opposed to me. And therefore, you have to learn to work with resistance. It's actually like it's a subpersonality. And some things it'll let you do, and some things it doesn't want you to do. It's an organized oppositional intelligence. Yeah, I'm I've used this quote from Martin Luther King a few times, but he talks about how. Inside every person, he was obviously saying this during the civil rights movement, but inside every person, there's a north of the soul and a south of the soul. And there's sort of this civil war inside all of us between like sort of the higher self and the lower self. And and this is the battle. Yeah, I mean, there are many good ways to put it. Uh, I've developed a very precise terminology uh, because even to say higher self, lower self, it, for me, it's too imprecise, although it's a okay. really good, good, really good metaphor. But when people want to know the actual mechanics and technology of, of transformation, I have found the more precision, the better, because we can just sure. deal with all those questions in a forthright way. And so so walk me through that framework. I'm, oh, okay. I'm curious. Well, you know, when you think of, first of all, the, what, we have what I would call the field of consciousness, or our neutral state when we're acting according to habit and things are going well. So I sometimes call it the A state. We're attuned, we're aware, we're awake, we're reasonably accountable, we're present. And if you're a relatively successful person with good habits, you don't have to put a lot of effort, a lot of focus into it. But let's say suddenly you're in traffic and then you have to be vigilant. And so you can feel your your body shift. Or let's say you come home and the spouse is upset. Some people go to an ego state of defensiveness. Other people go to an ego state of anger. Or the kid's not getting their homework done and there's frustration. So you realize that that neutral, what I call the A state, at any time, another ego state can intrude. So I call the array of potential ego states, positive and negative, the unconscious ego self. So... Upon reflection, a person might realize they have maybe 30 potential ego states um, that are arrayed in the unconscious ego self and that get evoked by stimulus without our will, without our conscious, without our making a decision. So for me, the function of the higher self is, first of all, to have a practice of observing what's happening in what I'll call the field of consciousness or the A state, however one wants to term it. Uh, Start to train yourself to be aware of it in the body, especially the negative ones, because they first register in the body. So it takes a lot of training 
to be aware when you're, you know, when you feel that bodily shift, uh, disidentify from it if it's negative, and even some from some from of the positive ones because of some of what we think are our positive ego states actually don't do us or other people any good. That's actually a more complex issue. And then there's the the process of um, through an act of will um, inserting. Uh, a, a different ego state to replace the uh, negative one. We call this the law of substitution. So, for example, I might counsel someone who it turns out they have irrational fear. Now, a lot of fear is rational. It's good. But they have been sometimes an irrational fear, let's say, of a spouse. They really want their spouse's or their romantic interests uh, approval. And they don't even really know how much they need approval. And when the other one doesn't approve of them, they start to feel anxious. So got to calm down, go up into what I call a higher self. First level of the higher self is the observer mind. Oh, there's an ego state of fear. All right, so breathe it, feel it, understand it, be it. And then ask yourself, what's the intervention? Well, here's where stoicism really comes in handy, where you might say, okay, I'm going to insert an ego state of resilience, of courage, of steadfastness. And, you know, from a brain side, you're fusing one neural pattern with another neural pattern. On the mind side, you're using your free will to shift your, you know, the mechanics of the inner life. Mechanics being transfer of energy. So the, the, I, I, I have many stages of the higher self, but you know, for simplicity, we'll say the higher self is aware of what's happening in the field of consciousness, is aware of what aspects of the unconscious ego self are intruding into the uh, uh, field of consciousness is aware when a given ego state doesn't match our vision for how we want to live our lives and is aware of what a substitution ego state ought to be and then has the will and the skill to do it and you have to train and train and train ryan if there's one thing that i think i you know i stand for is you can't think about it you can't read a book on it you have to train every single day well, I was going to ask you about that because, uh, and, and I know you talked about this a lot with Rich, but uh, I would imagine somewhat unique among rabbis, uh, or even just academics in general, you have uh, an interesting history of sort of physical training, whether it's jujitsu or your time in the Marine Corps. Do you feel like uh, an intense physical practice helps one in the battle against resistance or the battle against... Uh, you know, your ego consciousness or, or you know, d does physical training allow you to it's not forcefully insert, but does it allow you the sort of self, is that self mastery transferable in your opinion? That's a great question. So it's not transferable automatically, which means people say, well, so when you train in martial arts, does that automatically transfer to regulation of the ego self? No, it doesn't. Because there are many people who are outstanding martial artists and not very good spouses and parents. Sure. Now, if you have it, it's a great metaphor. It's a great analogy. And you've learned how to work with resistance. You've learned the skillful application of the will. You understand what it means to have a vision for yourself. So if you want to use it, uh, you know, as it were, the, the well-developed muscle of uh, consciousness and will, it's probably better that we have something else. Uh, but, um, you know, there are many people that are great artists and great musicians and, and their character is very deficient. 
So there's not an automatic transfer, but I can't imagine it not helping. Yeah, I, I think that that's actually something I'm, I was just uh, interviewing a, a great NASCAR racer uh, yesterday and I was talking to him about this. I, it was like, my, my question for a lot of elite performers is, can you be great at what you do and be like a good person and be good at home? And I'm, I'm actually both uh, scared and uh, I don't know what the right word is, but, but, and, and alarmed at sort of how rarely it does seem that sort of professional mastery or the physical training seems to not transfer. My friend Austin Kleon talks about art monsters, mm -hmm. people who are extremely talented at some artistic pursuit, but just like an utterly depraved, awful human it's, being. It's more common than it ought to be. And I have a theory about that. Okay. Is that when people actually achieve true mastery, and it can be in a skill, it can be in wealth, it can be a celebrity, anything that more that unconsciously communicates to them I have everything. Otherwise, I wouldn't be at the top of my game. I wouldn't be so famous. I wouldn't be so admired. I wouldn't have so sure. much power or money. And therefore, it takes a conscious act of will to ignore all of that and then put your inner, your, your character, your spiritual and moral development as a human being at the core of your life. It's hard for people who are getting messages from the world that they don't need to do that. And some of the people who have the toughest time are people who have psychophants around them that tolerate them because they like being near you know, the great fire of the fame, celebrity, power, skill, and so forth. So it is disturbing. You know, in many of my, you know, over my life, I've had, I've had clients who were famous, wealthy people and, and estranged from their children or in horrible marriages. And, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the rules for success in their given field that made them rich, powerful, whatever, actually are not the same rules. I mean, there is the application of the will for spiritual and moral development and refinement of character. And it seems like one is actually a much more impressive uh, sort of and, and narrower field, right? So uh, to be like, you think about, Let's say how many NBA champions have there been in the, you know, however long the NBA has been around or how many Super Bowl champions there have been. And then you go, OK, let's say there's a several hundred, several thousand, whatever the number is. It could fit in a, in a, in a decent size auditorium. And then you go, OK, how many of these were uh, crappy fathers? How many of these were, uh, you know, uh, ignorant or racist or, you know, you go down and, and all of a sudden that room gets smaller and smaller and smaller. <laughs> right. So, you know, it's interesting where we, I don't want to say compete, but it's interesting where, what we tend to measure ourselves against. So we'll go, oh, well, I want to be the guy or the, the gal in the room with the most rings, mm -hmm. right? We don't think, well, I want to be in the room with the rings because I'm talented at this thing and I've dedicated my life to it. Like, I don't know anyone that writes books and they go, I hope these books sell no copies and I am, you know, utterly irrelevant as far as the cultural detachment, uh, you know, cultural consciousness, because mm -hmm. obviously you want to be relevant. You want to be in the mix. But to me, I want to be like, and I, the, I think the harder competition, again, not a perfect metaphor, but the harder race to run is 
to do that and not lose these other things along yeah. the way or to lose, yeah, that's, that's you know, well to, to, so to be I'll, good. I'll, sure. I'll share with you a metaphor that I use. And uh, um, it, it's too simple of a metaphor, but it's instructive. And that is there are three worlds or three levels of consciousness. So I call them the temple, the field, and the fence. Okay. So outside the fence is, let's say, the world in the outside world, where I, you know, I want financial stability all the way to wealth, and I want some power over my life all the way to power over other people. I, you know, person depending, I want mastery, fame, whatever it is, and that's outside the fence. Then there's inside the fence, there's what I call the field of consciousness. What do, I, what do I want it to be like in my inner life? Do I always want to be competing with somebody? There's always going to be somebody better. There's always going to be the next person that's going to displace me. Or do I want to make that, that world inside the fence, the cultivation of character? And it's not really competition in the sense you're competing against somebody else. But there is struggle with resistance. So in, in the work with character, uh, managing that field, finding the, you know, the toxic places and how to uh, rehabilitate and reclaim them. So I call that the realm of the field. And then the temple is the deepest interior part of a person where you're connected to the soul, connected to spirit. For religiously oriented people, you're connected to the divine is the origin of your values, of meaning, and purpose. So uh, just using these three for now, I would say that every person should have a sense of the temple, the field, and what's outside the fence. And if we commit ourselves to this, when things don't go so well outside the fence, the deepest meaning in our life comes from the field and the temple. Sure. Right. And, and which, uh, which of those three things do you have the most control over? Right. So it's like, you know, so much has to go right. You have to get so many breaks. You know, you have to work so hard to, you know, uh, make it into professional sports, let's say, or get a book deal or, you know, have your company be funded. And then all these other things after that have to go right. And it's not to say that it's so impossible you shouldn't try. Of course you should try. It's just interesting that we spend the majority of our time and energy on the external stuff, which the Stoics would say is not up to us versus character, happiness, relationships, et cetera, which is in our control. We just sort of like hope that that takes care of itself or that it's a byproduct of pursuing the stuff outside the fence. And it almost never goes that way. That's correct. And even, uh, um, I'll, I'll reframe that a little bit. You see, Inside the fence, and my interest in character, integrity, honor, and the whole list of um, of character virtue that the Stoic tradition has profoundly contributed yeah. to. That doesn't mean that the marriage is going to go well because there's another person. Of course, that doesn't mean the parenting is going to well. But I, I can rest assured that at some level, I will bring the the best version of my character possible to other people and, and to my work. Um, you know, uh, here's what I disagree with the Stokes a little bit in the sense of free okay. will and determinism. And yeah, that's, that's, that's a very arcane kind of, I want to talk to you about that. So we'll oh, get to okay. that. So I just don't believe that. I really believe that 
I believe in free will. Therefore, I have to believe that things are not predestined, pre things are not, you know, when they say live accordance with nature, I, I, I would never say that to anybody because no one is exactly sure what that means. Yeah, I don't think the Stoics exactly define it. Either. No, they don't. And, and it, it, you know, it's a popular metaphor in, you know, in the traditional world of philosophy and religion. So I just ignore it. Yeah. Because when I'm counseling somebody, I would never say, live according to your nature. That's just not helpful. Right. What I would say is, what are the aspirations of your spirit, your soul, character, and what's the resistance? And let's start there. No, that's an interesting way of putting it. I think, uh, you know, we, we tend to know these things sort of intuitively, or, or one might say this is the voice of God. We sort of know what we should be doing, what our purpose is, why we are here. Even people go like, how do I know what my passion is? If you really talk to them about it, they know what it is. It's then, uh, as Stephen says, uh, you know, the resistance get in the, gets in the way. Stuff gets in the way uh, and we don't do it. Exactly. And my sense is because I, I teach a path that goes from virtue, which is restraining resistance in the behavioral realm, rationality, which is a great focus of the Stoic and, and other traditions, wisdom, uh, which for me means the wise understanding and managing of the inner life. And then there's a realm called depth. And many people don't know how to connect with their depth. And I think, for example, in one's depth is where meaning and purpose get worked out somewhat unconsciously. So when a person says to me, I want to have meaning and purpose in life, I say, I want to give you a different metaphor. Meaning and purpose have you. It's not an object you have, something that claims you. And the deeper you go into the soul, you start to know what claims you. It's like art. You know, when I look at a piece of art or I see a great movie or I hear a great song, I'm not using my rational faculty to, uh, to assemble a theory and then it's beautiful. Beauty grabs you. And I think the soul works that way. So I think cultivation of depth actually is a skill. And a person says, well, how do I do it? I say, well, do you have the will? Are you willing to learn skills to cultivate depth? So even depth is something that requires vision, will, and skill. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. Opening up to a therapist might feel uncomfortable, exhausting, or exhilarating, but one thing's for certain, if you keep talking or texting with a licensed therapist, you'll gain insights and uncover truths you can only find in therapy. If you want some personal breakthroughs and judgment-free support, you can sign up right now for Talkspace. At Talkspace.com, you sign up online, you get a personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within 48 hours. It's incredible incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions with your licensed therapist, and you do it from the comfort of your home. There's no need to commute to appointments, miss time at work, or line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. And to celebrate May, Mental Health Awareness Month, and the power of talking it out in therapy, Talkspace is offering every listener of this podcast 80 bucks off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com slash stoic. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash stoic to get 80 bucks off your first month with code SPACE80. 80 and show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com slash Stoic code SPACE80. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals 
that are right for the job. In fact, we were just hiring for Daily Stoic and we found our new podcast editor on LinkedIn Jobs because LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. Over 2.5 small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring like we do, as I was just saying, because LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, sometimes even faster than that. You can hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash stoic. That's linkedin.com slash stoic to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. I'm in the middle right now. My I'm the, the first book will come out probably shortly after this episode. Um, I'm doing a, ser- a, a, a four-book series on the four virtues, the cardinal virtues. So I'm starting with courage and then uh, self-discipline or temperance and then justice and wisdom. Mm-hmm. And what, what's been interesting to me as I've, so I've written the first one, I'm on to the second one, but this is the first time I've had to really think about like what the book is each book in the series, because usually I've done all my books sort of as one-off things. I haven't had to think about interrelationality to other projects, but it's been interesting to me to see just how dependent the virtues are on each other. So courage obviously requires an immense amount of willpower and restraint and dedication and endurance. So that's willpower and and, uh, self-discipline. But then, you know, how much courage it takes to do the right thing, which would be the virtue of justice. And then how empty courage is, if not in the pursuit of justice. And then finally, the wisdom required to know what to resist and what not to resist, what to be courageous about, you know, what is the right thing. Um, it's, It's kind of wonderful that, you know, 2000 years ago, someone comes up with this idea of, you know, basically the good life is these sort of four ideas. And, you know, the most brilliant minds in history, whether it's Aristotle or whomever, have tried to add a few here or there, but it really just comes down to these sort of four virtues. Um, Almost across all religions, traditions, uh, schools of thought, East, West, you know, secular, spiritual, at the core of it, you know, Marcus Aurelius says, if you find anything better than courage, temperance, justice, or wisdom, it must be an extraordinary thing indeed. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think he's right. Yes, and they, they, they're intertwined to what I would call the temple. And this is, you might say, the mystery, because that which you discover is the common foundation, let's say, of the fourfold path or the eightfold path, right. however you want to enumerate it. I mean, Buddhism has a nice articulation. Aspects of Hinduism have a nice articulation. Um, but let's say one settles on those four, and then you find they're all entwined, exactly as you're saying. I mean, when does courage become courage for its own sake? Just, for example, a defiance against the odds, foolhardiness. And so then you have to say, well, then we need temperance. And then Courage, uh, not in a just cause. So you're 100% right. They're deeply intertwined. And therefore, I think the the whole person, you know, let's say when they come out of that mystical region of the temple where they are assembled in the soul and then articulated in, let's say, four different words, which leads to, you know, an, an, an intertwined wisdom path, 
then you're out in, in as it were, the, in the field and you're trying to work the, all of this out. And I think you're writing a book on this is great because people actually haven't thought enough about uh, courage, uh, temperance, wisdom. And that's one thing I, that I recommend is that people actually think about these things, read books on them, look them up, cogitate, reflect, because language is the interface between the soul and consciousness. And therefore, mastery of the linguistic articulations of, of this, in a way, help you apply them into your life. That's a, that's a wonderful endeavor. And uh, you certainly have encountered the, the mysterious uh, unity of these great virtues that then branch off into, you might say, different concepts. Well, and, and I try to talk to to Stephen before I start just about any book project uh, is always very, very helpful. And I was talking to him at the beginning of the Courage book and, and what he sort of really helped me with, and I, it ultimately is going to end up applying to all the virtues, is that, and, and perhaps he's borrowing uncredited from you, your idea of the temple, um, is that, okay, so you say you take something like courage. So at the primary level, it's about fear, right? Mm-hmm. You, we are... Uh, besieged by fear. I was I was surprised to learn that uh, "be not afraid" is like the most repeated phrase in the Bible, or close to the most repeated phrase in the Bible. Mm-hmm. So at this fundamental level, it's about fear, right? We are afraid of things. So first level is sort of you get over fear. Then there's just this sort of ordinary courage, doing scary things, you know, chasing your dreams, you know. Uh, you know, uh, jumping out of an airplane, whatever it is, right? The, doing a, a scary thing, standing alone about an idea. Um, but above courage, we have this idea of, of heroism, right? This is when this is when courage is pursued in the pursuit of something not just just because it's not really courageous if it's not just, but when it's when something just is pursued. Um, with sort of real selflessness. So something like the, as, as, as Stephen writes in Gates of Fire, something like the 300 Spartans going against out in a battle, they will almost certainly lose for the sole purpose of buying the time for the, the, the Greek alliance, for the Greeks to get together. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, So, so we have these virtues, but then also the virtues operate at different levels, right? Sort of ordinary self-control, like, getting up and exercising or, you know, focusing, these are great. But I think what, what a lot of spiritual practitioners find is that, you know, first off it's discipline, then it's routine, but above routine is like ritual. This is where you get to some sort of higher level. This is where you have access to the temple or you're speaking with the divine. When you pursue these virtues, first you understand them, then you study them, then you apply them. But as as you really turn yourself over to them, you can reach kind of a transformational level or or um, insight or plane that just isn't accessible under normal conditions. Yeah, and and therefore, I mean, let's let's think about courage for a moment. I mean, those those Spartans trained continuously in martial arts, and they talked about dying, and they. Like, you know, when I was in the Marine Corps, you know, we, we would oftentimes, you know, there's a, there's a mythology of the, let's say the battle of the chosen reservoir. Sure. When the first Marine division was surrounded and they had to pull out. And so, you know, one regiment at a time and then the 
last regiment and the last battalion of that regiment and the last company of that of that battalion and then the last platoon and suddenly b you know third platoon b company realize they're the last one and they're all going to die and when you read the stories of the pull out from the chosen reservoir when they looked at third platoon and said well okay so you're it and they would they do they went oh what is it and they walked back and held the line and the 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 you know the the company held the line and the battalion held the line so i know in the marine corps the idea is um, you will be called upon to die understand that now now we're going to train you how to make sure you take more of them than they take of us so we're going to bring it to them and make sure they pay for the privilege of killing a marine and you know once you got that through your head i'm here to die I'm not here to run. I'm not here to be afraid. You know, there's a transformation within. So uh, that kind of heroism, I think, takes a lot of training. I'll tell you when it kicked in for me. So I never saw combat. I served from 73 to 76. But I was in an active shooter incident uh, once at the L- um, L.A. International Airport, 1970, must have been eight or nine. Wow. And, um, you know, without going into the whole, I actually wrote about it in, uh, in my blog in the L.A. Jewish Journal. So in any case, I hear gunfire. And so, you know, I dived under a bench like everybody else. And then my training kicked in. I'm not going to get shot here lying down. So I got up. I saw the shooter at a distance. The person walked out onto the sidewalk. And I thought to myself, like, you know, it wasn't that I thought about it. I wasn't being a hero. It's just that you go toward the sound of gunfire. Right. You don't hide. You don't run. Where's the gunfire? Go toward it. And then I, you know, hid behind a pillar. The person came, had a confrontation with a gun in my face, took the person down. And people said, well, it's courageous. I said, I never even thought about it. All I did was, you know, I had been out of the Marines. I got out in 76, maybe three years out. So when you go through this kind of a training, you're trained to be that when the moment requires, your training kicks in and you've already conquered the fear from constant training and constant attitudinal adjustment. But Ryan, I'll tell you where it comes in day to day. When I teach people the virtue practice of de-escalation in a conflict with the spouse or kids, and I when I I say, look, you just got to de-escalate. Say, yeah, okay, sure. Um, oh, all right. Just you know, in boxing, we call it deflecting punches. Not hitting anybody, but you're not going to land any punches either. And people say, well, I don't want to be a doormat, and then they just get anything they want. I think of that as lack of courage. That that the 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 assertion of self when you don't make anything better that's actually not courage because courage there means I'm going to fight my resistance to being a rational person and de-escalating these things. So so where does the courage come in? In fighting your yetsahara, which says be defensive, yell back, take a stand, and a higher part of you says they're in a bad place today. I don't need to exacerbate the situation. So it's interesting that when we look at something like courage, uh, temperance, wisdom, etc., they're intertwined. But in the in the field, as it were, the dragon is resistance. The dragon isn't jumping out of the airplane. That's for the, an elite few. The dragon is resistance, and people don't want to train to fight inner resistance. And so I think. You know, I, I was trained, you know, in the military, you know, to be in a gunfight. 
sure. martial arts to be in, let's say, a fist or a grappling fight. The greatest fight is with resistance. Yeah, there's a story. I, I wasn't sure if I was going to put it in the courage book or, or ultimately in the self-discipline book. And I think I'm going to put it in the self-discipline book. But um, where Martin Luther King was giving uh, a speech on stage and uh, some sort of deranged person came up on stage and uh, physically attacked him, like with his fists. And someone who was there was talking about how everyone in the room gasped, not just because like they don't want Martin Luther King to get hurt, but they gasped because here was the true test of a, a supposed man of nonviolence, right? And they, they what is Martin going to do? Is he going to is he going to defend himself from getting hit in front of people? Like imagine just all these eyes on you. You don't want to be as a man. You don't want to be humiliated. You also just don't want to be who wants to feel physical pain. But they said there was this. They they watched. Like it was like time slowed down and they watched Martin drop his fists as the man approached him. Mm -hmm. And so in a sense, you know, if you're thinking about it superficially, this is an act of cowardice. He just lets himself get beaten by someone. And then you think about the incredible both courage, justice and self-discipline it required to not fight back um, when the the validity of his movement, you know, is intersecting with his physical safety. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's that's not just ordinary self-discipline or ordinary courage. It's an elevation of, it's approaching something somewhat uh, divine. And when you, you know, you watch them marching in Selma or, you know, in Montgomery, to, to, to the discipline and the courage required, um, it's not, it's not, more or less than, uh, you know, the physical courage of running into a burning building or as you did facing down a gunman, but it's, it's somehow at a slightly higher spiritual level. Um, although I would argue you stepping out and, and stopping a gunman is, is also heroic in that sense, because it's not the, you know, it's not jumping out of an airplane, which requires you to master your skill and requires training, but there's something because other people are involved uh, because there's something on the line, it means something more. Yes, and uh, that's a great example because I know that the in the um, the, the 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 committee for nonviolence they trained and trained and trained not to get in fights with the police, and yes. and he was part of that training, so his training kicked in. But just as an outsider, I would say, what if they would attack his wife or his kid? Yes. You see, then it wasn't, I'm training against racists. I would hope he wouldn't say, well, I'm going to let someone attack my kid. I would hope he didn't know how to get in between and push the person back and say, you got to back up. So that was very case specific in a movement that strategically used nonviolence. And there are other times, you know, when you have to train to be able to, you know, match or subdue somebody. Yeah, Gandhi was asked, or Gandhi said, if if I had to choose between cowardice and violence, I would choose violence. Right. So I think that that is something we don't quite in our understanding of the history of these nonviolent movements. We don't, we don't, we don't give them enough credit for how strategically they were using right. nonviolence as both a spiritual as well as a physical weapon. 
Yes. You know, when the uh, Jews were being persecuted in Europe, somebody asked Gandhi, what should the Jews do? And he said, practice nonviolence. They said, you know, the Nazis aren't the British. Right. It, it was not, it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. So this is where wisdom comes in. Like, what yes. exactly is the context and what am I trying to do here? So, you know, I had, you know, my, my former wife and, uh, you know, and, and family, my mother was there. I mean, there was a whole uh, luggage area filled with people and everybody was frozen. And I just thought, not on my watch. You know, just, I had to get out there. Uh, by the way, it was a woman. She was bigger wow. than I was. Uh, she had a massive revolver, but it was, uh, uh, it was actually a, a deranged woman who was denied entry uh, to a, uh, her, her church uh, tour of somewhere. And she came and they wouldn't let her on. And she pulled out a gun and started shooting people. And then she walked down the sidewalk to shoot some more people. And, and that's where it happened. Uh, but yeah, there's a, here's a great example. Um, courage is, uh, you know, Falstaff says in Shakespeare, he says, I, I'm going to get it wrong, but something like, uh, um, uh, oh, God, pr prudence and uh, discretion is the greater part of courage. Now, now he, he is a fraud. Oh, discretion is the better part of valor, right? Yeah, valor, exactly. Discretion, you know, and we, of course, when you read it, it's 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 written humorously because he's he's covering his tracks by sure. saying semi-profound things. But on the other hand, at some level, it's true. I'm sure that Shakespeare was quoting some well-known uh, epigram that discretion is the better part of valor at times. So this is where you're right. They're all in, they're all entwined. Courage temperance, wisdom, self-discipline, they're all entwined with each other. They all have a common core. And I'll put wisdom above them all because wisdom, you know, with its uh, its greatest tool, rationality, is where you figure all this out. Of course. There, 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 there aren't, well, none of, all the virtues are intertwined and inseparable, but wisdom is the key with which you unlock how much and when to apply any of the other virtues. Exactly. That's exactly right. So, you know, speaking of uh, of of the four virtues, I I thought you might be an interesting person to talk through this with. I think one of the things I've struggled with uh, over the last uh, year and a half. I'll, I'll give you an example. I got an email from uh, from a Christian um, just the other day. Um, so I, I have this bookstore here in Austin and uh, right outside Austin. And, and this uh, we have two young kids who can't be vaccinated. So we've kept a, a sort of a mask policy on the, the whole time we've been open mm -hmm. um, because for self-protection and then also because I, I, it would be unconscionable for me to know that like an outbreak started in my store or uh, affected someone I lived near or cared about or worked for me or whatever. So this lady sends this super nasty note. She, she comes in, she was asked to put on a mask. She storms out and she sends this really mean note about it. And I posted the note online. Um, I didn't like give her name or anything. I just posted it and then I, we kicked off this whole sort of set of news stories about it. Anyways, uh, you know, this person is sort of anti-vax, anti-mask, you know, why should I be inconvenienced by, you know, a, a, a pandemic that has a 2% death rate? You know, the, the, the whole sort of litany of nonsensical uh, objections that we've been dealing with for the last 18 months. Anyway, somebody sent me an email and said, you know, how could you do this? You know, I'm a Christian. Uh, we're supposed to love our neighbors, blah, 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 blah. 
And, and that's actually something I, I, I believe, you know, I believe, uh, it, which is precisely what's motivating my sort of actions in the pandemic is my belief in our interconnectedness and our obligation to each other. I've had a really hard time grappling with not being made jaded or bitter with the sort of abject selfishness and cruelty of, you know, what is at this point, like tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of our fellow countrymen and women. And I, I understand that, you know, people have been misinformed. I understand that people don't always react rationally to things. I understand that people have been manipulated. I understand that people project on things. But it's been hard for me to unsee what I've seen. Yeah. And yeah. how do you think about that spiritually and morally? Sure. It's something I'm wrestling with philosophically. But happily, happy, happy to address it. So the first thing I would ask you is, can you distill your motivation in precisely your motivation in posting it? In posting it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and look, I think this is less about the posting. I'm, I'm more talking about just sort of the general philosophical right. disagreements about mm-hmm. the stuff. But my 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 thinking in posting it was we, uh, I, I believe as a society, we've sort of been trucking along with this, this naive belief that um, if we're just really nice and really patient, we can convince people to do mm-hmm. the right thing. Yeah, that's, and, that's irrational. And that is, that is, that has come at the cost of hundreds of thousands of preventable deaths over right. the last 18 months. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to, to show people, because I don't think people who are not actually up close and personal, especially people in like, I don't know, a city like San Francisco or New York or, or, or LA, where you think everyone's on the same page as you. I wanted to show people like, this is the profound, uh, excuse my language, uh, brain fuckedness of uh, people that we're dealing with. Yeah. Okay. So as I think about, um, you know, uh, I would distill your motivation in this way. At some level, it's an affirmation to those who agree with you. Isn't this crazy behavior? Yes. And then there's a group that you're putting up a mirror that they they actually might think those things, but they never actually saw how crazy it was until they saw what it looks like in a fully articulated form. So then you change a few minds. For the people that agree with her, it's not going to make any difference. Right. So, so then you might say, if I could change a few minds for people who could see the mirror sure. of this toxicity from someone supposed to love their neighbor as themselves, and that's what they stand for if they're a devout Christian or anybody in, you know, in the tradition that reads the Bible, um, how much they're in violation of it? Okay. And therefore, which, which principle is it? You know, is it I am offended by the mask. Is that your main principle? Or is it the principle of love your neighbor as yourself? Which, you know, Jesus brings the entire teaching down to two things, love your neighbor and love God. So now we're going to put does that it, I think Hillel says, uh, love thy neighbor as thyself, all the rest is commentary. Um, what Hillel says is, do not do to others that you would not be, want done to you. That which is, would be hateful to you, don't do other people. So it's not so much... Do to others as you would want to be done is don't do to others. It's, it's sure. more, more minimal. But but yes, and it it's certainly derivative of uh, love your neighbor as yourself. So what I try to do with these things, because remember, as a rabbi of a congregation, and I'm glad to say it's a pretty diverse congregation. And so uh, because I'm a law-abiding citizen, the people who are 
really believe this is a big hoax and to wear a mask is to drink the Kool-Aid. They, they've left because, you know, I, yeah. I, you know, they just feel I've somehow betrayed the truth. So we're going to put them aside. Um, in every dispute that I think about, I try to understand what's the inner motivation of the other side if they take a stand, which upon reflection, upon, you know, some sustained reasoning, I know they're wrong. They don't have a mastery of the facts. But what they've done with the facts produces a theory uh, that doesn't hold up. So I see this all the time. Sure. So therefore, something in their temple and field has gone awry. So when I look at the uh, anti-maskers, and you know, so who are the two groups that don't want to get vaccinations, for example? Uh, you know, at least in LA, it's the both the black community and the and the and the right. Uh, you know, they both don't want to get vaccinated. So what's the what's the, what's the connection? They're likely coming at it for very different reasons. For exactly. They don't trust the government. Right. They really don't trust the government. And so what happens is people find symbolic ways to express not trusting the government. So not wearing a mask is a way to say, I don't trust my government. I don't trust the science. The science is flip flop on this uh, uh, all the time. You know, when they say, you know, if you said it began in the lab in Wuhan, oh, you're a crazy nut conspiracy theorist until you're not. You know, hydroxychloroquine was, you know, like a crazy Trump theory. And then people actually found out actually it does reduce the symptoms. So some people say the science is in the hand of the pharmaceuticals, in the hand of the government, all in each other's hands is a big hoax. So I say, look, do you want to have a rational conversation? Yeah, people make mistakes, but let's get down to the basics. But many people, when they look at all this going on, they get a, you know, a fixed idea. And the fixed idea can be, it's a scam. It's a hoax. I won't wear a mask. And to ask me to wear a mask is to make me subservient to this, uh, you know, this this uh, usurpation of citizens' rights. I, I hear that a lot. Sure. You know, that, um, uh, uh, you know, there's this incredible overreach. And by the way, I actually think there's been some, some overreach, but I'm a law-abiding citizen. If the law doesn't ask me to do something clearly immoral, I'll, I'll, I'll obey the law. Sure. So when I talk to people about it, I say, let's go inside. And what I try to do is find the field in the temple. And at least someone says, look, I'm hearing your story. Can you calm down? I want to find the core value that's shaping your reasoning that has produced this behavior. So in posting it, you you were taking more of a, I'll say, political in the sense of how should the polis, how should the city live? Sure. And you've decided this kind of behavior is not right. And I want to show everybody what it looks like. So I, I fundamentally would agree with you. Some of them had the, you know, the the disrespect to do that to you. You're going to, you didn't put their name up. You showed it. Um, but if you're asking me as a spiritual teacher, um, some of the spiritual philosophic dimension, uh, I prefer empathetic understanding, find out where they are. And if I think there's a better way to reason, I'll try to lead them toward it. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases. The time is now more than ever to embrace breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that have enthralled you, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers. My wife and I have both been raving about this book, Furious Hours. Whether it's kids' books, my books, thrillers, history books, the Stoics, it doesn't matter. You can find whatever you're looking for on Audible. My belief is that books are important and amazing. I'm 
little bias, of course, as an author. And whatever gets them into your brain, I'm all for. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. Visit audible.com slash daily stoke or text daily stoke to 500 500. That's audible.com slash daily stoke or text daily stoke to 500 500. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. I talk about that in Growth Hacker Marketing. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com stoic. That's netsuite.com stoic. Yeah, I guess in, I guess, I guess what I'm, what I'm talking about is, you know, uh, how do you, how do you make sense of, how do you come back from, how do you not be uh, sort of permanently altered by this glimpse we've had, you know, uh, Burns's line about man's inhumanity to man. Mm-hmm. We basically have, you know, a good chunk uh, of the population that's just sort of said like, I don't give a shit about anyone else, right? And they've expressed this in different ways, whether it's, you know, I'm young, why do I need to get a vaccine? Or who are you to tell me what to do? Or I don't believe it's real. Uh, or, you know, the, the potential consequences of the the vaccine, which are non-existent, you know, uh, in truth, uh, to me, don't outweigh the benefits. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, yeah, down I, I, the line, I, I, what, we're, what we're talking about is, is, is an an abject rejection of this idea that we should love our neighbor or that we have a responsibility to ourselves. I think, you know, I I guess I didn't have any sense that we were all like sort of kumbaya on the same page, but it it has been sobering to see just how much people struggle with this. It's a really great point. And it's complex. I'll tell you why it's complex. When you look at fascism, both National socialism on one hand in Italy and Germany and communism on the other. Sure. What was their appeal? Let's all pull together. Yeah. Let's all pull together. And what that means is the government will set out the goals and all the people pull together. And if you're not on board, we will hurt you. And we actually might even kill you. Sure. So there is, I think, in many people, a natural anti-fascist tendency that says, when people says, hey, let's all work together, everybody get on board. Well, who are you to be talking for me? And when did we vote? Has anybody ever voted? Was this ever put to the citizens? Now, I'm vaccinated. However, when, when I see a person says, I don't want to get on board until we put it to a vote, right? And I demand a vote. I think to myself, I wish more people in Germany and Soviet Union would have said that. But what did they do? I mean, they were terrified to, get to, 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 to sign on. Second thing is when people say it's never been this bad, I think I say 1942 was a bad year. Just look at what's happening across the globe in 1942. The Nazi advances into the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, beginning of the of the of the, uh, the Holocaust. Um, the Japanese had been in China murdering hundreds of thousands of people, and I think and and this is it's never been this bad. Well, it's never been that bad in America. I say let's go to 1862. 
And so for many people, when they, they don't really understand the struggles of the human condition without a strong sense of history, and, and Ryan, as you know, I'm just picking a couple of things. We could talk about the Armenian genocide. We could talk about Mao killing 30 million of his people, if not more, uh, Stalin killing 30 million of his people. You know, so I say we have to put things in perspective here. Sure. No, no. The perspective yeah. is is key. I'm not saying it's in any way the worst thing that's ever happened. I, I would, I guess, I would push back in two in two things to you there. So number one, it's hard to it's hard to buy if if the most resistant group in America to sort of COVID preventative measures has been white evangelical Christians who overwhelmingly supported a candidate who. Uh, uh, let, let's just say was a proto-fascist. Uh, I, I, I can't fi- I can't buy the argument that this is rooted in some sort of instinctive anti-fascist movement. And then I guess what I would say is is that something like the Second World War, which now COVID has killed more people than the Second World War, American citizens in in the Second World War in, in less in, in far less time, uh, or the Civil War, slavery, all those things were sort of massive geopolitical events that uh, required, uh, it was sort of man battling man um, uh, or, or man battling, you know, some, some sort of political grid rock or, or something. I think what, what's, what's, I think the hardest thing to countenance about our pandemic response is been how sort of preventable and then also how little is being asked of the of each individual, right? Yeah. And so this is the, the stoic idea of like, look, uh, we, you know, you don't have that much power, but you have a little bit of power. What matters is do you use that power? And when you watch people sort of abdicate that duty, Mark Cirillo says, the fruit of this life is good character and acts for the common good. It seems like we have really struggled with the idea of like, what is our I'm, I'm working on a piece right now. You know, we have the Statue of Liberty on the west, on the east coast, and Viktor Frankl proposed a statue of responsibility on the mm-hmm. west coast, the counterpart to virtue, it, or the counterpart to liberty. Yeah. It seems like we've we we have spent a lot of time emphasizing what our freedoms are, what our liberty should be, but we've struggled with this idea of what is what is the flip side of that? What is our obligation? What's our duty to the common good? Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's very well put. I think you and I are actually addressing two separate questions. Maybe. Um, you see, when a person, let's say, supports Trump or is an anti-vaxxer, I start with love my neighbor as myself. I really want to understand them. I want to understand their reasoning core. I have my political commitments that are rooted in responsibility. But I also want to start, I don't want to start by saying, well, you're wrong, you're stupid, you're not responsible. Because they're actually a human being who lived their entire life to get to this position. And if I'm in conversation with them, what I want to say is, I'd love to hear your story. So I think what you're saying is on the, on the policy level, and I'm talking more about what would I say to such a person. Sure. And I really do believe that on the responsibility side of things, part of what we're responsible for is deeply respectful dialogue with people whom we differ greatly. And and sometimes when you have that deeply respectful dialogue and the person doesn't feel that you think they're stupid or irresponsible, that you actually care about their story, 
sometimes that shifts people. You know, the greatest example of this is, uh, I'm spacing on his name, but the, I think is a black guy down in Georgia, Alabama. And so he talks to Klansmen. Have you, have yeah. you heard about this, right? Mm-hmm. So, and they end up giving them his robe and people say, how could you talk to those people? He says, well, how many robes did you get? <laughs> so see, that's a model for me. Sure. You know, yeah. I will, I will support reasonable policies. I, I, I think we should teach responsibility and it's a, it's a tragedy that our school system doesn't teach more virtues starting at the spiritual and character levels and all the way out to the ethics of civic responsibility. Uh, you're talking about what I think is a, is a reasonable political stand of our interresponsibility as citizens. And I'm speaking about more of the spiritual moral path of the encounter with a person with whom you disagree. I guess I've I've found it interesting, you know, having a public platform that's about one thing and then you occasionally sort of talk about issues and people go, oh, you know, you're being political. But I think what I'm actually talking to you about is sort of basic social contract stuff. So it's kind of interesting to me that as a society, you know, we have become so polarized that even some of these issues of, you know, love thy neighbor or, you know, that 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 we owe an obligation to the country or the nation or the, the, the ideals that made us here that we, we owe an obligation to that. Um, that even that is sort of up in the, uh, you know, uh, up, up, up for debate that that's just another political issue. Um, so I think, yeah, you you know what I'm saying? Yeah, sure. And you see the, but then you look at, uh, uh, you know, American history, you look at the labor movement, you look at the, um, the cultural uh, struggle, you know, 1960s. So there's always been, I mean, you go uh, all the way back, you go generation after generation, you go back to America, there's always been dissidents. There's always been people that thought differently. Now, I think, and I write, write at my conclusions, but as a good American, I realize there's always been a strong culture of dissidents in our country. And then people polarize. Right. And people take stands and you know, people say this is what's best for our society. Right? So I've chosen not in general to be an advocate for my position. I've in general been an advocate for the way we reach a common move toward a common center. The way we move toward common responsibility is to lower the temperature, stop polarizing and really listen. And first of all, teach the ethics of dialogue. Uh, because, I mean, there are different theories of what it means to be a responsible, responsible citizen. One says not to drink the Kool-Aid on this virus stuff. The other says they're ready to get vaccinated. They both think they're being responsible and the best for society. My goal is, can we just all calm down, listen to each other? Because I think minds are changed when people don't feel defensive and, uh, and under threat. So this has been my position. So sure. if a person is of a different position, unless it's truly egregious and teaches murder or something, I'll, I'll hear the person out and I'll say, may I respond? And I'll say, what are your premises? What are your axioms? How, what are the facts as you see them? And you know what, Brian, sometimes people realize, I don't know what my premises are. I don't know what my axioms are. I really don't have a good mastery of the facts. That doesn't come from me saying to them that you're a crappy person with crappy premises and crappy axioms. I just do a rational practice of, of you know, can you bring it out to me? And then sometimes people realize themselves. You know what I sometimes do for people, Ryan? I say, let me give you the best case of your position. Sure. And I make their case for them. They said, wow, I could never say it so well. I said, now I'll tell you why I disagree. <laughs> yeah, steel manning, as they call it, instead of straw manning. Uh, 
Steel Man. It's called Steel Man versus Straw Man. Oh, oh, uh, yeah. Make them stronger. That's yeah. exactly right. I've never heard that phrase before. But I find it's a great way, first of all, the humanity of dialogue, which I think, you know, Frankel would be very much uh, sure. in praise of, that ultimately I have a responsibility to the soul of the human being sitting across from me. And not a responsibility to say that that my conclusions are better than theirs. Let's start with you're a human being with a story. I'm a human being with a story. I'd like to elicit yours. I'd like you to elicit mine and come away respectful of each other. I have simply found that if I happen to be, you know, if my axioms and premises have, have the ring of truth to them and my theories move from those axioms and premises into policies that make sense and I can display that in a non-hostile way, I change more minds by doing that than starting out the other way. Now, you're in a different position. You have a public voice. You are a you know, person on the stage in the cultural conversation of America. You take a stand, you know, and I, I have good friends who have taken stands. Their life is somewhat about, you know, I mean, on one hand, you're a deeply philosophic person, but you're, there's some advocacy there. So you're talking to a person who decided very young, I can be an advocate for my political uh, positions, but I'm going to be an advocate for something else. And, and um, this is very much, by the way, rooted in the Talmudic tradition. Um, you know, one wouldn't think that there are, there are, Profoundly different interpretations of what it means that God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. Uh, so the ancient rabbis had, had sometimes very bitter conflicts about what the law meant. I mean, they agreed that the sentence is in the Bible, but what it meant, I mean, they actually had violent fistfights about this stuff. Sure. And so there was a moment when, you know, somebody says, well, who's right, the school of Shammai or the school of Hillel? And, you know, a miraculous voice comes from heaven and says, God prefers the school of Hillel. Why? Because they presented the theories of Shammai before their own, and they comported themselves with dignity and respect. So the voice from heaven doesn't say, we support Hillel on the merits of his argument. It says, we support Hillel on how he conducts debate. So it says, these and these are the words of the living God. Which one does God prefer? the more respectful one, the more careful one, the one who decides that if we're going to argue about something, I want to, I want to do the steel man, as you're saying. I want to give the best version of you, and then I'll respond, and we're going to work things out. Because the only way we're going to come to, I think, a sense of civic responsibility and hold the center together is with an ethics of dialogue. Now, this is one guy. My friends who take advocacy positions, I'm saying I'm glad you're taking an advocacy position, so I don't have to. So I don't, I don't mind that people take advocacy positions, but it leaves room for me to teach the respectful dialogue position. Yeah, no, I, I, I like what you said about this being a struggle that goes way back, because if you think about it, yeah, this is, uh, it goes to your point too about the individual struggle, which, you know, Lincoln talking about, you know, the better, the better angels of our nature, Martin Luther King talking about, you know, um, living out the true meaning of our creed, but then also as an individual level, you know, we've had the moral and spiritual instruction from God or from philosophy for thousands of years now. The struggle is actually living it. You know, uh, Epictetus says, don't talk about your philosophy, embody it. It, it. It's, it's you know, this sort of constant battle and journey to apply the ideas that we heard about, that we've learned about, that we care about. And then trying to get a little bit closer to it, not 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 to moral perfection, but just to 
just to um, in, in spiritual progress, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's challenging. I mean, people walk away from that fight to fight to fight their resistance to be loving. I, the person could have written you a, diff, a different email and said, first of all, you're a human being. Uh, I don't assume I'm right. I'm assuming you're wrong. I want to share with you my take on this thing. And I want to know, as a fellow citizen, I respect your take. This thing's going to end. Let's just not fray our country. What, try to imagine you would have gotten that email. Uh, yeah, then, I suppose I suppose at the end, though, the implications are... I don't think there's any way of saying it other than the implications of it are monstrous, which is this, this uh, virus has a 2% death rate. And so we should just let it happen. We shouldn't have to, as individuals, we should be able to decide whether we give a shit or not. Yes. And whether but, we have an obligation. Yeah, that, that. That's the inherent problem. Yeah. So you can say that and you can advocate that position, right? I would not use the word monstrous. I would really want to understand what they're saying, because remember, people are thinking, uh, you, you know, is there a cost to protecting everybody? I, I'm not saying that their algorithm is correct. Right. What I'm saying is, you know, when we look at the history of our country, I, I just I feel a little bit of resistance that there's some point of view that I will call monstrous, because what do you do with monsters? You kill them, you exile them, you marginalize them. You know, we, you euthanize them. Okay? We sterilize them. So what you're hearing in me, Ryan, is just from having studied so much of human barbarity and, and the history of dissidents, something in me just wants to be cautious and hear what a person has to say without calling them a monster. Now, you might be right on this. It might, it might be better to say it's monstrous. And so I'm not saying... You no, and I'm not that. saying the, the person is a monster. I'm saying the implications that we like, like you, you always have to think about, uh, I guess, was it Kant, the, the sort of uh, categorical imperative, like, what would it be like if everyone acted like this, right? What mm -hmm. would, what would it mean if this became sort of the law of the land? And so you, I think we have struggled as a society to, whether it's climate change or gun control or these issues where people are sort of like, but what about what I want to do? It's, it's not that that's not valid or real. Of course it is. But I think what we've struggled with is going, okay, let's sketch this out. What does this mean in real sort of human cost? What is the consequences of this position. So it's not that a person is a monster, but yeah. what what they have picked up on the internet or whatever has an inherently it, it's I mean it when when you think about freezer trucks full of bodies because hospitals are overloaded or the fact that like you know I have to uh I have to wake up today, right, and yeah. think right. there are zero available children's ICU beds in central Texas. And I really hope my kid doesn't fall and hurt their head because those are all taken yeah. up now so, by unvaccinated. You know yeah, what I'm saying? So, yeah, that, so we're, we're, we're not we're actually we're not actually debating anything here, meaning I think we agree the best thing for our country is to be extremely careful, get vaccinated, live responsibility, you know, it, it, have a, a, a civic a, a civic ethic of interresponsibility. We yes. both agree. The only thing you're, you're hearing from me 
is if I were to sit down with one of these people, how I would conduct the conversation. And I think as I, as I present my side, I think what happens is I trigger something in you that goes back to the advocacy. Yeah. And then I say, well, I'm not talking about advocacy. I'm talking about dialogue. And then you go to advocacy. I go to dialogue. So here's where I would say, let's just move on because (laughs) I agree with you, but I'm talking about something else. No, no, I get what I get what you're saying. It, it, I, I do see how when you're when you're trying to debate with a specific person, what is what is the entry? Where, where is the path of least resistance as you're trying to uh, connect with someone or communicate with someone? Where where are they going to be most open? And I've got mm-hmm. to imagine your sort of practice of doing this over many decades now you, whether it's a couple thinking about divorcing or it's, you know, someone who's uh, become addicted to drugs or someone who's fallen away from this, the, the faith, you've had to really craft an ability, probably not unlike your jujitsu skills, to get access to them without triggering precisely what would make them unwilling or unable to hear what you that's, have to that's, say. That's very well put. And it is like jujitsu. And when I work with a lower belt, I don't want them to freak out. I don't want them yep. to panic. I want them to know you're in good hands. Everything's okay. And I'm only here to teach you. So let's, I mean, you go back to some fall away from the faith. If someone says, well, I've left religion, I've left Judaism. I don't start with my conclusion. Like, oh, I got to get you back. I don't, I, right. I, I, I require myself not to think that. I require myself, let me hear their journey of faith and try to understand their decision. And is the decision that's that's best for them, their inner life and their family and leave what my opinion out of it. Now I have my opinion, right? But that's not what you do when you're caring for the soul of another person. And when you're caring for the soul of another person, you have to start with what are their axioms? What are their premises? What's their starting place? And then see how they view the world. So in these different political issues, here's one thing I found. The different sides of political debate profoundly misunderstand each other. So if you were to talk to a person on the other side, and we would say, well, it's just rampant individualism. When I've talked to them, that's actually not their story. I don't want to say their story is because, you know, I don't want us to start talking about what their story is. Sure. But I want you to know, in nearly every one of these issues, they, they're their axioms, their reasoning is not what the other side thinks. So I actually, even when I talk to them with whom I disagree, the honor of being brought into their inner life, that they trust me enough to help them figure out what their axioms and premises are, because no one's ever been curious. And to say, okay, so show me how your axioms, premises, facts produce theories that produce policies. And they say, I've never heard about that. I said, well, let me show you what it's like. And they walk away saying, I've become a better thinker by sitting, by sitting this with this man, because I'm skilled. Like I'm, you know, I'm skilled in the mechanics of the mind, like I'm skilled in jujitsu. I'm a black belt. But here's the other thing that happens, Ryan. They say, if you're so skilled at this and you think differently from me, maybe I have to think twice. Sure. Because you've been so respectful, so careful, such a good teacher, and you landed on the other side of this thing. Sometimes that's an opening. And, and I truly hope I'm right about things. I've thought, I've thought about many things very carefully, and I think my conclusions at least are defensible. I'm not saying I'm right, but they're defensible. So, you know, as, you, as, as we engage in this, you know, stoicism, 
which is very much rooted in rationality and good thinking and the logos of the universe, you know, as a spiritual person rooted in a tradition that starts with love your neighbor as yourself, the ethics of responsibility, respect for humankind, uh, uh, and, and my profession, which is mostly dealing with the souls of other people. You might say, I've, I've developed a path in life which sounds like it's different from your path. And I honor your path. I mean, you're doing great work, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't want you anything different. Um, but, you know, I, you might say the, the world is made better because there's the inner path of dialogue and there's the path of reasonable advocacy. Well, yeah, I actually think, uh, and then I've got a couple more questions, but if you have to go, you tell me at any time. What, what I think is, in, what I find endlessly fascinating about Stoicism as a philosophy and where I think it diverges in the historical tradition from Epicureanism uh, and, and from, from, from all the other schools is that this, even though they all develop roughly around the same time and in the same place, is that philosophy, uh, Stoicism becomes a political philosophy. And I don't mean that it has so much specific policy uh, like planks uh, or anything like that, because it's 2000 years and all the issues in the countries and the people and places have changed. But uh, I think it was uh, Seneca talking about the Epicureans. He says, you know, an Epicurean says, I will not be political unless I have to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, And a Stoic says, I will be political unless something stops me. Right. Mm-hmm. So in Seneca's place, he's he's involved until he's exiled. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, to me, what I love about Stoicism is that it is inexplicably intertwined with uh, political engagement. This is why the founders, uh, you know, Washington and Jefferson are both you know, sort of proponents of Stoicism. This is why at the, the outbreak of the U.S. Civil War, you have this sort of resurgence of Stoicism. This is Stockdale in Vietnam. What I love about Stoicism is that it, it is engaged. I get your point that sort of, let's look at the soul. I, I What I find fascinating about Stoicism is it's tend to your own soul and, you know, we have an obligation to contribute to the soul of the direction of the state, the nation, the community, the right. business, whatever yes. it is. So let's, let's break that down just a little bit. You see, I think the core of Stoicism in caring for the polis. Let's say political means you care for the city, the well-being yes. of the city, and the citizens living together. And the 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 main path of stoicism is rationality. Yes. That what are what's happening in the city? What are the facts? And let's not ignore facts that don't fit our theory. Let's start with the facts. What are my theories? What are my axioms? So I do engage in politics in the same way that I care for the souls of other people. I'm not talking about my caring for my soul right now. I'm saying what it's yeah, like for the souls of others. But you see, to the point that I, I am engaged, and you know, now and then I will, you know, I will make a political statement, meaning I care for the the moral character of the polis. I will make a statement, but I, I'm, I make sure to back it up with, here are my axioms, here are my premises, here are the facts I understand them, here's the policy I'm recommending, here's why it lines up. I encourage you to challenge me. So yes, we should care about the polis. We should, uh, but here's the thing that- I'm not implying you don't, by the way. I I, I, I understand. I just want to be emphatic that that in caring for the souls of others, I I do care. But here's the thing that makes me sad. Whenever I, I end up talking to somebody on what we'll call a political issue, which means one side or the other. Sure. I'm saddened 
how poorly people are informed, even the people who agree with me, how ill thought out they are about their premise and their axioms, their relative lack of mastery with the facts, that their premises, axioms, facts, theories, and policies actually don't line up. and, And they agree with me. So... Well, this goes back to the virtue of wisdom, which is not, which is the most difficult of the virtues to attain and requires incredible commitment and dedication. Yes. And, and so that's, uh, uh, since you mentioned Vietnam, some people will say Vietnam, Vietnam. I say, look, I, I, I was alive during this time. I say, do you know anything about the Korean War? They say, they know nothing. Right. And I said, our country was traumatized. Uh, first of all, by the communist takeover of China and the mass murder that produced, the sudden North Korean invasion of South Korea and the constant barbarity that accompanied it and a nation unprepared. And suddenly this idea, wow, no one's going to do it if we don't. So this is Kennedy. I mean, if you look at Kennedy's policy is we have to be involved in the world. And so that was the American sense of self. It goes completely awry in Vietnam. But was, was, it was motivated by a Kennedy-esque idea that we have to prepare ourselves to sacrifice ourselves for the right and the good. And communism, as it was lived at that time under Mao, Stalin, and others, was, I think, you know, factually evil. Oh, if, if I mean, I don't point. think there's any debate. It was monstrously yeah. evil. Yes. So, but when people look at the American involvement in Vietnam, they say imperialism. And I said, you know, that's actually after the fact it looks like it. Yes. And so when I actually break down what happened in America, world and American history between 1945 and 1964, and let's understand why we went, why it went badly, I find that even though we might agree it was a mistake to go in, people are judging from their conclusion, and therefore they think they understand the history. Well, so they're judging you, from hindsight, and it's very easy it. to make very clear yeah. and clean conclusions there when, when at, the, at the moment— you know, uh, it was hopelessly muddy. I think, yeah, I think I had H.R. McMaster on the podcast a, a few months ago, and he, he wrote a fascinating book about the leadership in Vietnam, one of the sort of uh, how it goes so wrong from sort of the strategic standpoint. I think the real tragedy of Vietnam is not so much going in for, because the intentions, as you said, were both relatively noble and uh, at the time, relatively limited. Mm -hmm. The tragedy of Vietnam, and this is a key part of wisdom, was as the assumptions changed and as the information changed, we had a government and and a population that was unable, or we had a government and a military complex that was unable to acknowledge the change and change in accordance with that and we became sort of hopelessly trapped in this thing, which is, and then the, the ultimate tragedy on top of it is that we then make the exact same mistake in Iraq and Vietnam. And are yeah, only so, just, so what would, what would yeah. the Stoic do? What would the Stoic do as far as uh, well, look, Vietnam? Let's think about, uh, look, the military did not want to go into Vietnam. The military said never fight a war on the Asian landmass. But yeah. the military doesn't make the decisions. That was a, right. a political decision. The military, if they said go to war, they want to win the war. When right. the government says pull out, they pull out. They follow orders. So when the military is giving an impossible task, 
that's a decision made by our civilian leadership. It gets very, very complex. Well, there's an interesting story about Marcus Aurelius. So Marcus Aurelius is this philosopher king, and yet he spends the vast majority of his reign battling not just a plague, but also a series of of battles on the, the frontier of the Roman Empire. And sometimes I'll get emails from people and they'll go like, if Marcus was such a great person, you know, why why did he fight the Parthenians? Or why did he fight, you know, this tribe or that tribe? And what I try to remind them, I go, imagine you're the president of a country or the, uh, the ruler of a country and your border is invaded. No mm-hmm. president can just simply not respond to that. Mm-hmm. If a president doesn't respond to it, um, you know, you're essentially, you almost immediately become a failed state, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and so there are, and I think this is what's interesting about Stoicism. Stoicism is, for all its idealism, it's still also a pragmatic sort of uh, fact-based philosophy. Marcus Aurelius says, don't go around expecting Plato's Republic, right? We live in in the dregs of Romulus, as Cicero says. Um, and, and so Marcus is forced to go to war, but he negotiates almost immediately a series of truces. He, go, he fights in the conflict, but understands that, you know, what isn't palatable is both the expansion of the empire and endlessly defending the empire. Right. And so Marcus is known um, for his subjugation of these tribes. But really, as I understand it, what he was actually brilliant at was was more in the field of diplomacy or the idea of finding and brokering some form of peace. So right. obviously, there's are not perfect comparisons, but yeah, no, the it's, point it's about Vietnam comparison. is great. So the see, so my, my exercise is when I look at a, an historical moment, and let's say we we'll ask ourselves metaphorically, what would a good Stoic do? Yes. Without the benefit of hindsight, meaning what were their axioms and premises? What facts did they know? What policy did they recommend? And when when would they have said, I made a mistake? So therefore, I agree that the that that good people with good values have to be engaged. But when we study history, we understand that some of the most terrible mistakes were by people that had good values, thought they mastered the facts, created policies, and they were disastrous. Mm-hmm. So to you know, so there's no panacea, you know, to the to the broken timber of humanity. So therefore, my question is, how do I make sure, let's say, to use the metaphor, I'm not a mistaken stoic? Right. The way I'm not a mistaken stoic is engage those who disagree with me, because if my position is rooted in values and facts and good theories, I can withstand the engagement of someone who thinks differently, even when we discuss the past. So anytime someone says, well, let's talk about, you know, this thing or this thing or this thing, I said, let's talk about it, it because we're going to engage our premises, our understanding of the facts. And, and that takes some time. You know, it take, it's a sacrifice of time to master facts, which many sure. people don't want to do. So this idea of we'll call it stoic reasoning to be engaged, it requires a lot. So I'll, I'll say a last thing on this topic, uh, unless you want to ask me more questions, is sometimes when I engage with a person and I just bring up facts, I say, well, this, they say, well, how do you have time to like look all this stuff up? <laughs> and my response is, I will not let myself have an opinion if I don't. Well, it's your job. You know, it's all of our jobs. Well, it's, I think, especially my job sure. as, you know, as, a, as a spiritual leader who's, you know, you know with, a, with a doctorate, and therefore I know how to look stuff up. <laughs> yeah. 
So what I find with many people, they have very strong opinions and passions and a meager grasp of the facts, including historical facts, very hazy premises, but very strongly passionate about something. So I think what you're hearing me say is if you and I decided to talk about anything, the first thing I would do with you is let's not talk about our conclusion. Let's amass the facts that we share. Okay. So, so at least we're, we're, we have a, you know, we understand what our playing field is. And then I would ask you, so what are your premises and actions that you're bringing to bear? What's your value system that's shaping as we look at something? What would you have recommended? And what did the other side say? And I think we would both come out wiser from that engagement. Yeah. And Mark Strelis talks about, you know, when someone points out that you're wrong, uh, you know, they haven't done you an injury. He says to Correct. The, the, the injury is to continue being wrong. Correct. Um, and, 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 uh, this, uh, this ability to question your own beliefs is of course, uh, the, the root, the root of wisdom. And, and it's why Socrates was considered wise as he went <laughs> around asking questions and, and sort of generally kind of avoiding conclusions and mostly, uh, you know, trying to find out what other people think. Exactly. And so I find this, in, for example, so, uh, I, what I bring to bear is typically in families where there's so much pain, so much suffering, so much unavoidable pain and suffering. If people had what you might call the stoic ethic of is, first of all, I'm going to bring rationality to bear. I call it the police report. What exactly just happened? You know, it's incredible, Ryan. A couple will talk about something that happened yesterday and they don't agree on actually the bare bone facts of what happened. And, you know, so that's the first thing is we can't talk until we can actually recover some factual basis to talk. So this, what I call the political ethic of stoicism, I find is also the ethic of solving the great pain that occurs in families between spouses and parents and children, especially when children become teenagers. Um, This idea of, well, let's all first master the facts first. And now let me share with you my understanding. So, for example, many parents of teenagers, they've never read a book on child development. They don't understand what adolescence is. I have a class that I teach called Parenting the Soul of Your Child. I said the first thing, before you tell any kid what to do, you have to understand what their inner state is. Uh, I teach that people, children need wisdom more than they need advice. So all the hours you spend giving a kid advice would be better put teaching the chil- the, a child how to gain insight, wisdom, rationality, and so forth. So the same things that we're talking about, for me, are the ways of of bringing healing to a, a family um, is everybody calm down, discuss what exactly happened, what axioms are bringing to are being brought to bear. What's the fact of the situation, including the fact of ongoing human development? You know, what marriages are like, they have peaks and they have valleys. What people are like as they transform and you, like you marry somebody, that person is not a, a stable personality for the next 30 years. They're going through their journey. They're going through our changes. What people are usually aware of is, well, it doesn't please me. It doesn't fit me. This is, this is not good for me. And so sometimes I say, do you understand the soul journey of your spouse? It's never occurred to them to ask. Sure. So we're this, obsessed with ourselves. Yeah, naturally. It's not a bad thing. We, we, we see the world in reference to our opinions, our values, our understanding of our facts. And we're typically not interested in another person's understanding of the world. So I find that this is a core to discussion of any political issue. But interestingly, it's also the, the core of working out interpersonal disputes is curiosity, 
about the, the inner world of another person, how they're experiencing reality. And sometimes, you know, when, when, I, when a parent is really upset with their teenager, and the teenager is like out of compliance, so when you calm down, go to them and say, look, I don't want to give advice. I don't want to tell you what to do. I, want to, I, I truly want to understand you as a loving parent. So the kids don't buy it. They think it's, a, it's some kind of manipulation. You have to be insistent. I'm going to be your parent, hopefully, until I die. And I don't want us to have to go through this with bitterness. I want to understand how you see the world. And you know what? Many teenagers have never had a parent ask them, how do you see the world? Because parents are too busy judging their kids and telling them what to do. Now, this is a game changer. Curiosity about the inner life of another person opens things up that would not have been possible before. No, I think that's well said. Okay, last last question for you. Sure. I've already taken up so much of your time. All right, no problem. What, what so we can end on a on a positive note as well? I think not, it's all this positive. Wasn't positive. <laughs> no, no, I just I yeah. just meant positive generally, not yeah, that yeah. we were negative, but yeah. it's a thing I've been thinking about. Okay. What gives you hope? Like, what makes you hopeful? Uh, given your study of history, given the people that you see, given your reading, given your spiritual pursuits, what makes you hopeful? Okay. I'll answer metaphorically. What makes me hopeful is that North Korea calls itself the People's Democratic Republic of Korea. Okay. Which means they have to lie because they know a democratic republic is the best form of government. They know they're a tyranny, but they're going to lie. See, if they said the thuggish, fascist, uh, brutal state, that'd be honest. So I'm going with Steven Pinker here. If you look at the long view, what has happened to the world? They're at least acting as if. Yes. Uh, No, they're they're talking as if. But you look at the rest of the world. Yes, sorry. Yeah, the rest of the world, the model of a regulated free market, a... um, uh, a, a, a rights-endowed citizenry that ought to act with some kind of civic responsibility. Everybody knows that's the standard. So Steven Pinker's idea of you, it, you, you can't look at today according to how things should be. You have to look at how, in general, humanity has developed. I mean, look at China under Mao. And as much as it's not a free country, it's not like it was under Mao. So what gives me hope is, you know, I'll, again, I, I thank Stephen Pinker for articulating so beautifully. Let's take a long view and ask ourselves in general, not looking at the deplorable moments, but in general, what's the history of our of consciousness in the past 50 or 60 years? Right. And I think Stephen Pinker's right. That says the 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 vision of, uh, you know, of eradicating uh, uh, illness and poverty, the vision of feeding everybody, the, the vision of, of people having rights, that vision seems inexorable. I mean, there are downturns. But look, I remember when the Philippines threw over, uh, overthrew markets. I remember Solidaritat in Poland with Lech Walesa. So, you know, I remember you know, in, 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 when, when Solidaritat came into being. I mean, the world was a buzz. Someone's pushing back. And we were asking, what's going to happen next? Nobody could predict that in 10 years the Soviet Union would fall. And, you know, what I thought was a part of the world I'll never see, Eastern Europe. And I saw the Berlin Wall come down. And then I actually went to Berlin for a month. Ryan, my life has been filled with miracles 
of watching human progress. And I don't want to get lost in the bad moments and not see uh, this miracle that I've witnessed in my lifetime. I think that's well said. What's the, to quote Martin Luther King again, who I think he was quoting someone else about the arc of the moral universe sort of bending towards truth. And I think it was Obama as he's leaving office, you know, he's dealing with all these sort of despondent aides who are, can't believe that Trump's just been elected. And he goes, look, it bends towards truth, but it also zigs and zags. Exactly right? right. Um, and I, I, I do think that is always really important to keep in mind. Cause if you, you know, the Stoics talk about zooming out and taking Plato's view if you look at it too close, you'll lose heart. Actually, this is one of my favorite. Uh, one of my favorite. I don't know. I don't know what they're called in Judaism, but I, I learned about it from my friend uh, Aaron Thayer. Uh, he, he has a book with the same title, um, but it, he says um, it's it's like a, a Jewish hymn or something. Uh, the world is a narrow bridge. The important thing is to not be afraid. Yeah, this is you a know? saying of Rabbi Nachman of Bratislav. Exactly. Yes. If you look at it too close, if you look down, you'll lose all heart. But if you can zoom out a little bit, it's not so it's not so bad. Yeah, that's that's well put. And that's what gives me hope is the 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 arc of history moving toward truth and justice. And you know, and so my question is, how do I keep that arc in that direction? And you know, I, yeah. I've chosen my path. I'm really honored that you brought me on and let me uh, uh, share my path. And it's been a delight talking to you and hearing yours. No, thank you. And yeah, I would say that Sto- what you just said, that last part to me is the most <laughs> imperative part. It bends towards truth, but it doesn't just happen. What are you as an individual doing about it in attending to your own soul, attending to the soul of the people around you, attending to the soul of your community? Like, I, this is what I love about Stoicism, which is like, yeah, the great man of history theory exists, but what role are you playing? There you go. Exactly. Well put. Well, Rabbi, this was a wonderful conversation. I appreciate the extra time, and uh, sure, and sure. and I'm so glad that we got connected. And uh, I hope we can meet in person one day. I I hope the same. It's been an honor. Thank you. Remember, Courage is Calling, Fortune Favors the Brave is now available everywhere. You can go to your local bookstore and pick it up. You can come to the Painted Porch and pick it up. We are still offering uh, the pre-order bonuses. We've extended it to the end of this week. So you can get that at dailystoic.com slash pre-order. But you can also get Audible. You can get eBooks. You can get whatever you want from wherever you want it. But I would very much like you to support the new book, Courage is Calling, Fortune Favors the Brave. You know, if I would have applied myself, I could have gone to the NBA. You think so? Yeah, I think so. But it's just like, it's been done. You know, I didn't want to, I was like, I don't want to be a follower. Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shay Serrano. And we are back. We have a new podcast from Wondery. It's called Six Trophies. Woo! And it's the f-ing best. Each week, Shay Serrano and I are combing through all the NBA storylines, finding the best, most interesting, most compelling stories, and then handing out six pop culture themed trophies for six basketball related activities. Trophies like the Dom- Dominic Toretto, I live my life a quarter mile at a time trophy, which is given to someone who made a short-term decision with no regard for future consequence. Or the Christopher Nolan Tenet trophy, which is given to someone who did something that we didn't understand. Catalina Wine Mixer trophy. Ooh, the Lauren Hill, you might win some, but you just lost one trophy. And what's more, the NBA playoffs are here, so you want to make Six Trophies your go-to companion podcast through all the craziness. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that just saved Abercrombie? Or the tech acquisition that was just like Game of Thrones? Or the one financial equation that can solve climate change? Then check out our daily podcast, The Best One Yet, or as we call it, 
T-Boy. This is Nick. This is Jack. And we pick the three most interesting business news stories every day for the perfect mix. 20 minutes each morning, you're going to feel brighter. We call it pop biz, don't we, Jack? Where pop culture meets business news. So whether you want to kick off a conversation with your buddies or you're going for that promotion at work or you just want to know the trends before your friends, feel brighter by starting your morning with us every weekday. Listen to the best one yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your pods. You can listen to the best one yet ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. For more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts. With shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, and many more, Wondery means business.